0: Welcome to the Journal of Neuroophthalmology podcast. This is Dr. Prem Subramanian. I'm the online content editor for the journal, and I am joined today by Dr. Alfredo Sadoun. Dr. Sadoon was the 2012 William F. Hoyt lecturer at the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and he was invited by Nanos to give this lecture and chose to speak about mitochondrial disease and the work that he has done over the years to contribute to our understanding of it. His lecture now is being published in the journal as is tradition, and we have the privilege of having him today to uh, discuss his article with us a little bit more. Uh, Alfredo, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Pram, thank you very much. This is a, a delight, and i love to talk on the subject and look forward to this.
0: Thank you. And I'd like to start by just asking you a little bit about some of the future in terms of treatment of these diseases. You presented a lot of wonderful data on labor hereditary optic neuropathy, in particular, showing that long-term oxidative damage... Uh, rather than direct energy deprivation, uh, may be the source of axonal loss in the disease. And since it's this long-term oxidative damage over time, what do you think uh, the likelihood of success is for gene therapy strategies that are being pursued right now, for example, with the ND4
1: gene? I'm pretty optimistic in the long run, although there's a lot of technical issues that may make it more difficult in the short run. Um, And even though we do have evidence, just as you said, that there's long-term oxidative damage, it does seem to have a threshold effect. So it is not like many degenerations where it just sort of accumulates over time, Uh, that is to say I'm speaking about labors, hereditary optic neuropathy, but rather that it gets to a threshold and then the cells die pretty suddenly. So if you can um, hold off or divert the damage before threshold, such as with gene therapy, uh, I think you can do well. Um, this specifically and quickly, the evidence of it being um, an issue of reactive oxygen species as opposed to uh, ATP energy depletion is, is at least fourfold. We did cyber experiments where we grew cells with the mitochondria from labors and they showed only about an 18 per, 18% loss of ATP but hundredfold increases in reactive oxygen species. We studied the optic nerves from humans with labors that came to its pathology. And they were filled with nitrotyrosine, which is the accumulated product of reactive oxygen species. We've seen clinically certain circumstances where people smoke, and not necessarily smoke cigars or cigarettes, but were exposed to smoke, such as a family in Northern California, which was downwind of a tire fire, and the mother and both her daughters lost vision. And now most recently, we've just published a mouse model, uh, which actually has a genetic defect in it, in PNAS, And analyzing synaptosomes from the mouse model, we see the same story. Only about a 20% decrease in ATP production, but um, multiple uh, levels of increase in uh, ROS. But if the gene therapy can be made to work, not only will it give a little extra ATP, which I think is inconsequential, but it will shuttle the electron that's liberated by a faulty complex one back to complex three, and that will be critically useful.
0: So mopping up those electrons clearly important. And in your article and in your lecture, you didn't uh, have the time to discuss any reactive oxygen species scavenging drugs. And do you, what, what do you see their role might be, both in patients but particularly in obligate carriers who have normal vision?
1: Well, in regards to patients, we've fortunately had a chance to try a number of drugs out, And they've been somewhat successful, though not dramatically so. And the most successful drugs, I mean, people have tried a number of other approaches involving vitamin C, vitamin E that I would say have had no basis, no clinical uh, success at all. But with uh, a category of drugs, the quinones, the first of being Coenzyme Q10, which would be ideal because it would do that very job of shuttling the electrons back to complex 3. There hasn't been any success and I think that's due to drug delivery issues. The Japanese trimmed the tail of, co- of coenzyme Q10 to improve the drug delivery characteristics, and that's called idibinone. And as you know, there have been now both retrospective and prospective studies with idibanone They come up with identical results, so it's encouraging that at least in a percentage of patients, they end up doing considerably better. I think visual acuity is a terrible outcome measure because this is a disease that starts at a central scotoma that expands, and once you've lost the center, your visual acuity is so profoundly affected that it doesn't really show uh, the, 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 the great use of this drug, but either looking at OCT for retinal nerve fiber layer losses or looking at visual fields so you can see the edge of that expanding scotoma, you can find that adibinone works. A third-generation uh, quinone called Epi743 uh, has been developed by a company called Edison, um, and that probably works too. We've had a dozen patients in an open-label trial that we've used that medication. What's interesting is that both the adibinone and the epi-743 are not dramatic and they certainly don't work quickly. You've got to be patient and you usually see things get worse before they get better, but at about 9 or 12 months, they turn around and somewhat improve, with a few exceptions that really dramatically improved. And We've had 20-20 recoveries from counting-fingers patients and, more impressively, visual fields that basically normalized in several patients.
0: Fascinating stuff, and we look forward to seeing more on uh, that as it comes out. A lot of your studies have really been facilitated by the fact that you've had access to a really tremendous number of patients, and you wrote and spoke about the Brazilian labor family that uh, you were put in contact with by one member who really made an effort to reach out to you. Can you suggest to our audience members how we should go about trying to find resources like that? Is there anything that uh, we can do to help us study these diseases and find these patients out there?
1: Well, without question, serendipity plays a big role, and and I have been very lucky. But I think that maybe a, a little bit can be said to prepare you to take advantage of these opportunities. One is in regards to answer your emails. I get about 100 emails a year. From poor, unfortunate people from around the world telling me about their labors, and obviously I can't manage these patients by email, but I do answer each and every one, if for no reason than to give them a, a couple of articles that we published on Wikipedia so they can get to them and learn more about the disease, but also providing them local contacts where they might be able to get some help. Uh, and speaking of which, I think that local contacts are extremely useful, so maybe traveling around the world and making these contacts is, is worthwhile. Because with local contacts, I can get the results of the examinations. Uh, in certain circumstances where it's worthwhile, I can get the uh, the bloods uh, sent to us so that we can do the DNA analysis and learn more about the pedigrees involved. And finally, if it's a big enough opportunity, it's often the local contacts that provide, through their own residents and, and, and recent graduates, a large number of volunteers that can go into the field and, and help out. We've had that opportunity in Brazil where sometimes our, our team has been as large as 45 people in a year, Going to this remote area, but um, it's, it's been extraordinarily useful to have, have the local contacts, the Federal University of Sao Paulo in this case, providing uh, so many of these volunteers and all the infrastructural needs for us to, to do this. Um, one more thing, Prem, and that is that you had asked me, and I forgot to answer you on the issue of whether we should be treating carriers uh, who don't have any visual loss with the quinones. And frankly, I have reservations about that. Because we have to remember, it's not just the renal ganglion cells that are dying or may die, but there are all the different cells uh, involved uh, from microglia to macroglia, to astrocytes, to oligodendrocytes. And many of these cells are actually part of the damage process, as well as later on, the oligos and remyelinating as part of the recovery. And that might explain why sometimes things have to get worse before they get better. But it also means that we may trigger the very thing we're trying to prevent, in carriers and I worry a lot about that. So Until now, it's been my feeling that since we don't know the risk side of giving these treatments, we probably need to have a situation where the risk of the disease is very high before we would treat them. So I've reserved treatment for patients who already show signs that they're starting to go down the slippery slope from carriers to becoming converted to losing vision. By at least showing things like telangiectetic changes on fundoscopy or nerve fiber layer swelling and some visual field losses, even if their decent vision remains. But I've never treated a carrier who basically is normal for fear that I might trigger the very thing I'm trying to prevent.
0: You know, that's a great point because I think many people look at drugs like iDebenone or its derivatives as having no real downsides and. Uh, no risk to patients if we go ahead and give them. So I think that your uh, caution in doing that and your advice regarding that is very helpful to people. Thank you. I'd like to thank you overall for uh, spending time today to speak with us about the lecture and about the work that you have done over the years to really advance our knowledge about mitochondrial diseases and labor hereditary optic neuropathy in particular, and Uh, Again, thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, but I'd also like to add a thank you here to the uh, North American Neurom Society that was very kind to to afford the opportunity both for the award and for the Hoyt Lecture that uh, allowed me to speak on a subject I love so much.
0: This podcast represents the copyrighted content of the North American No Society. All opinions expressed in this podcast represent those of the participants only.